Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. I love so many things about being a doctor. The science is fascinating. The body sometimes seems nothing short of miraculous. But I especially love the human side of the work. The relationships, emotions, conversations. Talking through patients' medical decisions and hopes and fears can be challenging, but it's also deeply rewarding. In my personal life, I've been on the patient side of those conversations when my late husband Paul had cancer. And time and again, in talking about serious illness, I've come to see how the language we choose matters so much. When we talk about illness and cancer specifically, we all gravitate toward metaphors. Cancer is a battle, a war, a fight. We've all heard these, right? In some ways, these metaphors are very useful. They help us communicate emotion, wrap our minds around ideas that feel difficult to grasp, motivate us. Metaphors are also powerful. The way we talk about something becomes the way we think and even feel about it, and that guides the way we act. That's definitely true of the battle metaphor for cancer, which you do see and hear everywhere. But when you really think about it, that language can sometimes feel problematic, brittle, constraining. A battle is all-consuming. Battle means only resistance, without much room for integration or acceptance. And in battle, there are losers. When my husband Paul died, our regional newspaper ran an article, which was really meaningful. But the language in the headline surprised me. It read, Paul Kalanithi, who penned essays on dying, succumbs to cancer. And I remember thinking, no, he didn't. He died, but he didn't succumb. In this episode, we'll speak with two people about cancer and metaphor, one a linguist and the other an oncologist who has had cancer herself several times. When we talk about illness, why does metaphor matter? What does it mean to think about cancer as a battle? What are the possibilities for other metaphors? And can the language we choose reframe our experience of illness itself? I'm Dr. Lucy Kalanithi, and this is Gravity, a show about what becomes possible when we look at hardships differently. So the military metaphor in Western medicine is pervasive, almost to the point that it's easy to miss. We call the immune system the body's defense. Viruses and bacteria attack. We follow doctor's orders. This language shows up with cancer a lot and on a grand scale. In 1971, President Richard Nixon signed the National Cancer Act and said he was declaring war on the disease. I sent a message to the Congress the first of this year which provided for a national commitment for the conquest of cancer to attempt to find a cure. 
Nixon wasn't the first to talk about fighting cancer in those terms, though he popularized the habit, and it's been hard to avoid ever since. We know from history and other cultures and our own experiences that there are different ways to talk about this. But to change something, we have to notice it first. That's why I wanted to talk to Dr. Elena Semino, a professor at Lancaster University in the UK. She's a linguist who focuses on health communication and metaphor theory. The reason why I do this work is because um, my father died of cancer about 30 years ago when I was in my mid-20s. And in those days in Italy, you did not tell the patient that they had cancer or that they were going to die. And so we had this awful experience of not having language to communicate uh, with my father with, and we ended up in this awful pretense. And so I was then attracted to um, uh, basically communication about cancer, but particularly asking myself, well, we need to talk about this thing when it happens. What are the most sensitive ways of talking about it and what are the different ways of talking about it? To find out, Elena led a big linguistic study in 2015. Her team analyzed interviews and online forum posts by three different groups of people. People diagnosed with advanced cancer, loved ones caring for folks with cancer, and healthcare professionals. She and her team reviewed one and a half million words to find the metaphors that everyday people use when they talk about cancer. Two rose to the top. The most dominant metaphors used for cancer, at least in um, the setting that we conducted a study in, which is uh, English in the UK, but I think it applies uh, in other languages and countries too, uh, metaphors of fighting and metaphors of traveling. Um, the metaphor of fighting may well be the most dominant. Elena dug further into the battle metaphor, its origins, its permutations, its upsides, its pitfalls. If we talk about the, the fighting or battle metaphor for cancer, actually there are multiple metaphors. And some are related to different uh, words, what I would call linguistic realizations of the metaphor. So when war is used in relation to cancer, uh, not surprisingly, perhaps, it tends to be applied to the societal enterprise of finding treatments for cancer or providing the best support and treatment for cancer patients, etc. So the, the Nixon's campaign is an example of that. It wasn't an individual war. It was a collective war. And the agents within that were the state, researchers, etc. Whereas uh, battle and fight... Uh, can also apply to the individual level. And then, of course, things are very different because if uh, there is a failure in a collective enterprise, responsibility is shared amongst many individuals. But the biggest problem with the idea of the individual person who is ill being a fighter who has to defeat the disease is that if you continue that framing, if the person doesn't get better, then they have lost the battle. And when you lose a battle, there are potential implications for self-perceptions. In other words, maybe I lost the battle because I wasn't strong enough or because I didn't fight hard enough. What are the potential upsides for an individual person choosing the battle metaphor or buying into it even inadvertently? Um, there are people who, especially um, when there is a high chance of curative treatment, who actually find a sense of meaning and purpose in being a fighter. 
um, or also fighting with other people. One person talks about trying, wanting to find, uh, when writing on this online forum dedicated to cancer, this person says, I'm looking for more younger uh, cancer fighters to connect with. So you could always argue that um, the, this language is used because the metaphor is so dominant. You could also argue that uh, people are under pressure to describe themselves as fighters and that danger I think is always there. But it is also for some people, some of the time, that metaphor could be empowering, that it could give a sense of meaning and purpose. The problem is if the metaphor is imposed on people rather than as much as possible, sort of chosen. And also if that is the only metaphor that people have, the, the main framing that they have for the experience, then it could be problematic, especially if the person doesn't get better. I think about this as a doctor, you know, how do you choose? How do you choose what to say to a patient? It, it you know, the 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 metaphors and the stigma and all kinds of things from outside the hospital doors follow us inside, you know? So I think it really matters to try to be um, thoughtful and aware of what you're inadvertently imposing. You know better than I do, not every day is the same. And we have multiple identities and multiple ways of relating to uh, overwhelming experiences and experiences that are difficult to get away from, like a cancer diagnosis. And so what suits a person on a particular day doesn't necessarily suit them the following day. But at least for some people, some of the time, uh, there is uh, some linguistic evidence that those metaphors can be uh, empowering and meaningful. But because those same metaphors can be deeply problematic, those metaphors should be used with extreme caution. And ideally, my colleagues and I always say, never used first, for example, by healthcare professionals or in the media. Ideally, if they're used, they should be chosen by somebody who finds them helpful at a particular point. We'll be right back after this quick break. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, an online counseling platform. In this show, we ask a lot of questions about how to handle hardship and what we can gain from reframing stories of struggle. Everyone deserves space to explore questions like that in a safe and supported environment, and therapy is one way to get that space. With BetterHelp, you'll be able to get connected with a licensed therapist perfectly matched to your needs for professional counseling done securely online. This service is available for clients worldwide, wherever you are, whatever you're facing. Financial aid is available. As a Gravity listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com gravitypod. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash gravity pod. Welcome back. Let's return to Elena's work in a little while. Now I want to introduce you to someone else who thinks deeply about cancer metaphor in her life and work, Dr. Shakina Elmore. Shakina is a radiation oncologist on faculty at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. She's also a cancer survivor. Do you like the word survivor? Do you use a particular word? I usually use survivor because it's a shortcut for like, people. Then they can like know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. 
cancer survivor, I feel like is one of the terms that has like, I don't, I will say it. I, I think has like haunted me most. Like it just like won't leave me alone. I'm usually just like, I'm a person that's had cancer. I'm a cancer person. I say that a lot of people are like, that's awkward. Like, cause I feel like it, and it is. And I, but I think mm-hmm. it's like, it's, it's hard when we try to come up with these shortcuts for these like big complex experiences, right? Like cancer survivor. I just feel like it has it's supposed to be for everyone. As soon as you're diagnosed, you're on the survivorship spectrum, but I feel like it has such a strong connotation. And I think anchoring in like reflecting on the past, that it's something that you get to like put on as a stamp after you've had the cancer. Like, I think that if survivorship language affirms you, and I think it affirms some people then go for it. But I don't think it has ever affirmed me. Shakina was first diagnosed with rhabdomyosarcoma, a soft tissue cancer, when she was about seven. That was the first time I sort of dealt with cancer. But I think it was very much uh, in the way that a child does in that I wasn't that scared because my parents seemed fine, even though now I know that that wasn't true. And they did a great job of, I think just giving me safety. Um, but I, like, I knew it was a serious thing to have cancer. And I knew that like going to the cancer building was serious. Um, but I, my parents, I think just made me feel like we would deal with whatever came our way together. And, you know, now I think as a parent and as an adult and as a physician, I understand like more about like the acrobatics of what that must have looked like for them internally. Um, But what I think it meant for me is that I feel like I had a really normal childhood and I'm really grateful for that because I think it just sort of felt like, well, I had this cancer and I have to go in for scans. I have to do this. I have to do that. It makes me feel bad. I, you know, was allowed to complain a lot about it too. And that was heard. So I think that was also helpful Um, But I didn't feel like it was my identity ever. When Shakina was a teenager, the cancer came back. She had to balance school with radiation treatments and being a teenager while losing her hair and feeling sick from chemo. She had to figure out how to live with cancer and integrate it into her life. One thing my mom said to me, I think there was some point where I was just like, I just want to not have to deal with this. You know, I just want to be like this kid in my class who like seems to have all the things I have, but she doesn't have cancer. Um, and she was just like, you know, like I hear that I, I hear it and, and it's so hard. And at the same time, she was just, I think encouraged me to, to just know that like everyone has their thing, right? Like it's hard to, you know, past his prologue, and, and it's, while I, I don't ever wish to have had cancer, and I think if I could erase just that, I probably would, right? But I, I think it's hard to erase all the entanglements and no one has a flawless life. So I think she was just like, you know, these are the things that are happening to you and like, we can help you navigate it. But like, I think encouraging me to not wish to be someone else was really valuable. Shakina's treatment was successful, and she went on to apply to medical school in her early 20s while she was taking classes nights and weekends and working full-time. But then she found a lump in her breast. It turned out that she had cancer in both breasts, different cancers, 
and they also found a separate lung cancer. That was sort of like cancer in a, in a much bigger way in my life, because I, you know, had developed, I think this like burgeoning, you know, young adult identity. Um, and I was like really excited to start on this like new career pathway that felt like, you know, I don't want to say calling, but it felt like the right job for me, you know, that felt like a way that I could, you know, do what I was good at and what I loved. And then it like, I had like been accepted to med school and was just like so overjoyed. And then all of this came like crashing down. It felt like, you Mm -hmm. know, disruptive and unfair, right? Like, like why me, right? I'm just trying to live my life. How much more can I have happen to me? Before starting treatment, Shakina sought out genetic testing and learned that she has Lee-Fraumeni syndrome, a mutation in the TP53 gene that codes for a protein that suppresses tumors from developing. So the mutation puts Shakina at a much higher risk of cancer. It's kind of the worst that you could imagine in terms of like imagining, right? Like in terms of just like, oh, I could get this cancer or that cancer. There's really no limit. Mine is most likely a de novo mutation, which means that it's all my own. Like I didn't get it from mom or dad Um, in my case. um, Yeah, it's just something my body dreamed up (laughs) that um, is, yeah, it's a tremendous lifetime risk for cancer. And and so it just felt like, wow, like, should I spend all this time, (laughs) you know, if I can't even go to med school or should I go to med school at all? Um, But obviously I think that's become like a big part of, of how I have, you know, navigated my career as a physician. Shakina decided to keep going with her original plan. She started medical school right after finishing grueling cancer treatment. When you were going through your treatment or just throughout your course with cancer, did you think about the battle metaphor specifically? For me, the battle metaphor, I, I, don't, I don't love it because I feel like it implies that you can lose. Um, mm-hmm. And d- that like you can lose. And I literally, I think I told <laughs> my husband this. I was like, if anyone writes about me when I die, that I lost my battle with cancer, I will haunt them. I will come back and I will haunt them (laughs) for doing that. Shakina realized that she needed a different framing to help her live alongside the uncertainty of Lee-Fraumeni syndrome. So she turned to the writings of poet Audre Lorde, who had reshaped the battle metaphor into something much more resonant to her. Audre Lorde, who like informs, I think, so much of my thinking and so much of so many people's thinking about so many things. But for me about like poetry, life and cancer, like she even talks about it as, you know, that she's in this battle with this like liver cancer, which is, you know, breast cancer that's gone to her liver. But the way that she frames it as that we should expand the definition of winning so that we can't lose, that she wants to, you know, do the work that sh- that brings her joy, which for her was, you know, writing, teaching, speaking, educating um, for as long as she can. And that she wants to, you know, love the people that she loves deeply for as long as she can. Um, and that she wants to go out like a meteor. <laughs> I forget what her, I think she says like a firecracker and I think she swears too, <laughs> which is beautiful. 
Um, and, you know, she has lots of other work just on, you know, a litany for survival, just, you know, I think recognizing that like some of us were not meant to survive, right? Like some of us, you know, particularly those of us who are black and um, those of us who are, you know, women or femmes, like particularly black women, um, and of course, black men as well, um, have been positioned for early death, um, you know, by structural racism. And so I think that she is very much speaking to like, for those of us who are never meant to survive, like, what is the definition of being a survivor? And like, how do we do that with as much like joy and care as possible? Um, and I think for me, I have really come to the fact that I, you know, I've already won. Like, this is the destination, right? Like the, the present moment is the destination. Um, and, you know, that's, that's all we have. Um, and so I'm not going to be, I think, chasing any definition of survivorship that like requires me to be cancer free or to not be disabled. I think a, a real definition of winning for me, it's just, yeah, continuing with as much joy as I can muster you know, while, while really feeling deeply, like all the losses and then as much, you know, sort of terribleness and suffering as there is, you know, there's, there's joy to be found everywhere as well. And so I try to, I try to lean into that as much as possible. Despite her diagnosis or partly because of it, Shakina decided to become a radiation oncologist, marry her partner, Adam, and have a child, William. What's your son, William, like? He's two, right? He's two. Yeah, he's two and a half. Um, and he's just so amazing. And I I just, I am so amazed by him. Like, I'm so amazed by just, like, the delight and the joy. And she was making all of those life decisions in the face of radical uncertainty. It sounds like when I'm listening to you... Um, and from what I know about you, it sounds like you've done a lot of work to kind of integrate cancer into part of who you are, but also like really being sure to to make it so that cancer is just part of your story. And I've heard you say that. And it's interesting that you you said um, – I hesitate to say a calling when you're talking about being a doctor, because a lot of people do think about it that way. But I also kind of understand that you don't want doctoring even to be your whole identity either. So it's just so interesting to hear you talk about that kind of integration and maintaining like complexity and identity for yourself really separate from those two things as well. And I am curious as I'm listening to that, um, what were the times where you felt like it actually was really hard to get a grip on what this meant, like who you were, feel grounded in yourself, feel like comforted or inspired. Like, were there times that you felt like you were in a tailspin and didn't have any way to think about this? Yeah, I mean, I think when Adam and I first met, I think that was definitely a time when I was trying to search for a lot of metaphor and search for a lot of grounding to sort of understand like this new phase of like I think for me what I have like sort of come to as to like 
having been through so many different, I think, times where I've been like just deeply uncertain and grieving, right? Like grieving whatever I wish that I could have or what I thought I could have had or, you know, whatever loss that is, is that I think for me, it often comes at time points where I'm supposed to make a really big choice or where, where I'm supposed to project a long time into the future. And unfortunately for the career path, I think that I've chosen and that, you know, that you've chosen, there's a lot of delayed gratification expected and implied. And there's a lot of projecting into the future. And like, for me, like a five-year plan, like I, I, I've gotten to the point, I think, where I get into tailspins a little bit less or they're a little bit smaller. They don't like just like destroy everything um, because I sort of just say, what a preposterous idea that you know what you're going to be doing or what you're going to want in five years. I just, I can't really delay my gratification or delay the things I want to do or say. Like, I don't think anyone can, but like, I really can't. <laughs> like, I really can't wait until I'm like tenured to do the things I really want to do or to study the topics I really want to study. Cause like, I just might not make it there. Um, and I also just, I think I've had to let go of the idea that like, I will have done something wrong if I like, won't be around. I don't know if that makes what do you sense. Mean? Like, I oh, think you mean like you don't want to have regrets or something? Yeah, I, I think it's that, but I think it's in the question of like, what I want to do with my career or like buying a house or like having a child that like I am just not necessarily going to like make it to the end of the 30-year mortgage, right? Or the like high school graduation. And I think it's just taken me a lot of work to like be like, that's okay. You know, like that you can still... Right, like that doesn't mean you don't take yeah. out the mortgage. <laughs> right. I, I do think that having a cancer or having whatever thing that just like alters your life, right? That you can react a variety of ways to that. And part of that is probably personal, but part of it is like what resources and support you've had in your life. Just because I know that the ground may fall, you know, out from under my feet at any moment. That doesn't mean that I can't just like continue to move forward to to big, big long-term dreams and goals. And that it's like, none of that will be wasted almost. Cause I think there's just like this sort of pressure to like achieve these milestones when really it is just like any amount of time that I have like parenting or like living in that house is just so beautiful. And so I think that's another reason why I was like, well, no matter if I make it through residency, if I don't, if I get to be an attending for a year or 20 years, um, every interaction will last. Like every good thing that I've done will be a part of someone's life. And just like, what a beautiful way to live your life as opposed to always having some, you know, future orientation of like never quite making it. Right. Like I just sort of decided that I've already made it right. Like I've right. already won. And like it did happen. <laughs> like it happened. Yeah. yeah.
I asked Shakina how metaphor figures in her work, taking care of people who have cancer. I always try to get on board with the language that patients I'm working with are using. So sometimes people will sort of say to me, like, we're going to fight this. And I say, yes, we are. Right. Like I just mirror that. Like, yes, we are. We are going to fight this. Or if someone says like, I just want to, you know, sometimes people will say more like, I just want to take one step as it comes. And I just want to relax. And I want to not think, you know, every day about this. And I say, great. And I will tell you like when to worry, we'll talk about it when we need to talk about it. But I just try to mirror people's language and go with how they are thinking of and conceptualizing of their journey. And then if, if it seems like they're really struggling, because I think sometimes people are struggling with like, can I beat this? Am I going to beat this? Are we going to beat this? And then I do sort of say, well, like, let's step back. Like, what, what do we want to do? Like, how can we reframe this in a way where you can't lose? Right. Cause I just, people do, they want to not lose. You say that to your patients like that. Yeah. And what, and then and what like happens how, next? There's often just like a long pause and then a like stepping back of like, I really, you know, I, what's important to me is that I really want to be around for this event or what's important to me is I really want to not have pain or I, you know, I really just don't want to be coming into the hospital so many times. You know, there are, I think there are a lot of things that come out of it. I like the way you unpack it, thinking about like, well, if we're fighting, then what are we fighting for? Like, there's so many things that people are fighting for out of love for each other. And like, we can almost always help with that. Um, I love that whatever metaphor people bring to you, whether it's um, battle or journey or maybe something else, your response is like, yes, we are fighting or yes, we are going on this journey. It's like you are you are allying yourself like within the metaphor as a like co-fighter or a co, you know, like somebody else traveling down the road at the same time with them. So I love that, but you you sort of like use the metaphor to to like bring yourself in with them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think my job is to, yeah, to also invite questions around that. If, if it's like, if I see someone and carrying something on the road with me and it's like, wow, that looks really heavy. <laughs> it looks like it's really heavy for you. You know, do, do we need to take it or could I take it for you? Um, like, what do you mean? Look, like what kind of, like, I think, I think sometimes it's like, if someone starts out with a battle metaphor, you know, if they're like, we're going to fight this. And I think my first instinct is to definitely like get on board with like their plan. And then I think sometimes I notice that people are really trying to fight, that they're really trying to do everything that they're trying to like, not admit that this side effect is impacting their quality of life and just trying to do this and trying to do that. And and that I just am sort of like, hey, that looks hard. Is there a different way we can think about this? And I think for some patients that I've worked with, like really having them like let go of the fact that like you have to be a fighter, I think particularly for people who've like had to be fighters in other areas of their lives and haven't really had people take care of them necessarily or like offer to like unload their burdens. Like just someone who's like used to being like, I will fight through this. Like I will fight through this. I will win this. And that sometimes it's just sort of like, 
maybe we could reorient away from that and we could orient to like, we're going to try to take really good care of you. You know, at my core, I'm a palliative care physician, even though I'm not boarded in that, like so many of my mentors are palliative care physicians. Um, and that's like really how I've learned to take care of people. And, you know, that's like just cloaking someone. And I think that's like first and foremost, how I think about care. I love that Jakina mentioned palliative care here. That's a medical specialty and care philosophy that focuses on quality of life, not just quantity of life. It's for people at any stage of illness, and it gets to that deeper version of the battle metaphor. What am I fighting for? And how do I shape my life and healthcare around that? Because the metaphors we use can even affect the type of care we choose. For example, is hospice care a form of giving up in battle? Or is it a way to be cloaked when you most need it? I think maybe part of it is just, it's not so much maybe that I don't like the battle metaphor, the journey metaphor, but it's like, are we actually like engaging with those metaphors like richly, you know, or are they just like sort of stock? It feels like oftentimes they're just sort of like stock tropes, but if we could, you know, talk with people about, yeah, deeply about like what metaphors resonate with you about, um, it's this like sense-making, like helping get their heads around these enormous changes. Cause I feel like the battle metaphor, it's not like a care metaphor, you know? Um, and so I think, yeah, like sometimes I'm just like, wait, I'm not a soldier. (laughs) I'm a physician. (laughs) Like my job is to like really try to just surround you with care. Shakina's reflections on patient care are rich with many metaphors. Surround, cloak, mirror, carry. She deliberately chooses those words that allow for support and intimacy and nuance. And that opens up space for people to be real and honest with her or scared and unsure just to be themselves, to choose their words, their path. Building on that more expansive view of metaphor for cancer, I want to go back now to Dr. Elena Semino, the linguist we heard from at the beginning of the episode. Though the battle metaphor was most prevalent, she did find that people used more than a dozen other metaphors for cancer. So there was a whole variety of metaphors. Some involved supernatural or fantasy entities, uh, such as a cancer was described as a beast or a monster uh, or a demon. But there were also uh, metaphors uh, of uh, involving animals uh, that uh, captured the way in which people felt. So some were very conventional, such as a a rabbit in the headlights, uh, particularly when the news of a cancer diagnosis was first delivered. We had metaphors to do with wholeness and physical integrity, um, uh, losing a part of you or uh, uh, perceiving that part of your sense of self had gone. There were also metaphors to do with physical restraint, feeling trapped or imprisoned, so feeling like a prisoner because you're not able to do the things that you wanted to do or even eat the things that you like to eat. So one of my favorites uh, is a musical metaphor where uh, someone says that for her, um, healing is uh, persuading the cancer cells to sing in tune with the rest of the body. 
So this is a metaphor where the goal is neither in the end point of a journey or a victory or defeat, but it, it is uh, musical harmony. Uh, there were quite a few metaphors to do with cancer as an unwelcome lodger or an uninvited guest. Um, and there is one particular one where the person then talks about having invited this guest to leave and uh, the house was left in a bit of a mess and the guest, this unwanted visitor might come back. But for now, uh, that uh, visitor uh, is no longer there. And there are also metaphors that are used to express the way in which hardship uh, and cancer in particular um, make people look at their lives differently, uh, appreciate things in a different way. And so one person has a lengthy metaphor to do with um, currencies and stock markets, basically to suggest a revaluation of their lives, what matters, and they express it as a metaphor, as a financial metaphor, that different amounts of value are attributed to different things as a consequence of the diagnosis. After Elena published her research, the cancer communities she was embedded in started asking her for guidance. Which metaphors are good for patients and clinicians to use, and which are bad? Elena couldn't answer that, though, because of her finding that different metaphors suit different people, or even the same person at different times. And that's where I got to the idea of a metaphor menu for people with cancer. A metaphor menu. She made a menu of metaphors. It was a printed page that people could pick up and read at cancer centers, patient groups, medical schools. The idea of the menu, the menu consists, currently it has 17 different quotes from our data or other sources, but uh, either in the original form or very close to that, uh, that provide a variety, a range of different metaphors. Um, and the idea then is, as in a restaurant, of course, the metaphor menu itself is metaphorical, that different people will like different things. And certainly everybody will have things they don't like on, on the menu, but hopefully everybody will find something that is suitable for them, whether to um, validate an experience that they have or to provide a fresh perspective. So it doesn't say these are the metaphors you should use. It says this is choice for you. We hope something here is useful or we hope you might be inspired to produce your own dish to uh, uh, arrive at metaphors that are helpful to you. Elena's Metaphor Menu for Cancer is online and we'll link to it in our show notes. It's revolutionary, isn't it? A menu says explicitly, it's your choice. If one of these looks good, give it a try and see if you like it. And as Shakina says, see if it affirms you. In every episode of Gravity, we have a poem. Because poetry is a language all its own that can capture what it is to be human and validate and even shape our experience in a way nothing else can. This episode's poem was chosen by Shakina, and it's read by her friend, Dr. Onanye Balagoon a radiation oncologist specializing in breast and gynecologic cancers. This poem is one of the pieces Shakina said means so much to her as a Black woman, oncologist, and person living with Lee-Fraumeni syndrome. It's by Audre Lorde, and it's called A Litany for Survival. For those of us 
who live at the shoreline, standing upon the constant edges of decision, crucial and alone. For those of us who cannot indulge the passing dreams of choice, who love in doorways coming and going, in the hours between dawns, looking inward and outward, at once before and after, seeking a now that can breed futures, like bread in our children's mouths, so their dreams will not reflect the death of ours. For those of us who were imprinted with fear, like a faint line in the center of our foreheads, learning to be afraid with our mother's milk, for by this weapon, this illusion of some safety to be found, the heavy-footed hopes to silence us. For all of us, this instant and this triumph, we were never meant to survive. And when the sun rises, we are afraid it might not remain. When the sun sets, we are afraid it might not rise in the morning. When our stomachs are full, we are afraid of indigestion. When our stomachs are empty, we are afraid we may never eat again. When we are loved, we are afraid love will vanish. When we are alone, we are afraid love will never return. And when we speak, we are afraid our words will not be heard nor welcomed. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it is better to speak, remembering we were never meant to survive. Thank you so much to Drs. Jakina Elmore and Elena Semino, and to you for listening. I hope you'll join us for our next episode, which pairs with this one, because it's a reflection on how Paul and I experienced his life with cancer, and I get to bring in his voice. Our family didn't use the battle metaphor much, but as you'll hear, we did talk about a struggle, the struggle to find meaning in the face of mortality. Thanks so much to BetterHelp for sponsoring today's episode. We all deserve to be heard and to have space to process our hardships, whether it's facing depression or loss, relationship stress, or processing anger or trauma. BetterHelp is equipped to handle your needs. With BetterHelp, you'll be paired with a licensed professional therapist to meet with privately and securely from your own home, from anywhere around the world. Financial aid is available. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. As a listener to Gravity, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com gravitypod. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash GravityPod. Gravity is produced by Maddie Foley and Lindsay Cradwell, with help from Taylor Williamson for Wonder Media Network. Original music is by Rachel Wardell. Rekha Murthy is our editor. Jenny Kaplan is our executive producer. You can follow us on Twitter at WMN Media and on Instagram at WMN.media. And you can follow me, Lucy, on Twitter at RocketGirlMD. Please take time to share Gravity with a friend and to rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much.
Before you go, if you've been enjoying Gravity, check out a brand new podcast from Lemonada Media called The Cost of Care. It explores how the broken healthcare system in America can bankrupt you, rob you of your livelihood, or actually kill you. What's the cost of care? Everyone can relate to spending time with insurance forms, paying medical bills, and advocating for yourself or someone you love, only to end up without answers. With healthcare economist David Smith, the cost of care is about how we ended up with a broken system that leaves so many of us worse off and drowning in debt. David, who grew up in a Mormon community in Utah, shares how he lost his faith and his father, sister, and brother to the same deadly epidemic. He meets with patients, experts, and policymakers to break open why sickness pays and health doesn't, and to ask, what's your life worth? All 10 episodes of The Cost of Care from Lemonada Media are out now, and you can listen wherever you get your podcasts.